Well, good morning. Uh, like Marty said earlier, my name is Taylor Russell. I'm one of the fellows up here. Uh, I am super excited to uh, get to speak. We're going to be, like he said, in the book of Esther, not the book of Ruth. Marty Bashan, my girl. She's not a bad girl of the Bible, Marty. She's a good girl of the Bible. She's awesome. <laughs> Um, But we're going to be in Esther this morning, Uh, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles there. I want to go ahead and pray for us, uh, and then we'll get started. Father, I thank you so much uh, for the love that you've given us for your son. I thank you that we get to be here this summer, that we are free to worship uh, here at Grace Bible Church. I thank you for the people that are in this room, uh, that they woke up and that they're here. Um, And Father, I pray that this message this morning would be your words, not my words. Uh, people would be encouraged um, by where they are here in College Station in the summer, taking summer school, working. Um, Father, use this time. Uh, speak to us. Father, help me to be helpful. We pray all this in your son Christ's name. Amen. Awesome. Well, a few years ago in the news, uh, there was a story about a California couple that was definitionally in the right place at the right time. It's this insane story. Uh, and how it goes is there's this couple, and they were moving out of their apartment one afternoon, and as they're carrying their furniture out to the car, uh, they start to see these toys falling from a third-story window uh, in one of the apartment buildings. And as they round the corner to their horror, they see uh, this toddler reaching his leg over the window seal to go out and get his toys and retrieve them. Uh, it was an awful, awful sight. I can't imagine being it, but as if it was out of a movie... Uh, they just so happened to be carrying their mattress at the time to go take it out to the moving truck, right? And so without a second thought, they take the mattress, they throw it under the window, and the, uh, the, hus- or the husband goes and he grabs this baby as it's falling, guides it down onto this mattress, and saves the baby with, with no injury at all. And it's this amazing story about this couple being in the right place at the right time, and honestly having the right tools. And what's cool about this kind of story is when you look back at what led to that event. And I think when we think about these right time at the right moment, uh, or right moment, right place kind of events, uh, and we think about the events that led up to it, it's crazy. As they were telling the uh, news story later on, they talked about how they had gotten caught in an elevator earlier that day. And it wasn't just one or two minutes stuck in an elevator. No, the the elevator had a complete malfunction, and they were stuck in this elevator for 30 minutes before they were able to continue taking the furniture out, right? And so as they're thinking about that, man, if we wouldn't have been stuck in that elevator, this, I, I can't even, you know, stuck in an elevator for 30 minutes, that sounds absolutely miserable. If we weren't stuck in this miserable, terrible situation for this long, we would have been long gone from moving out right here, especially we would have been packed up the the mattress, right? But it was this crazy event that led up to them being in the right place at the right time to save this this little baby from (laughs) that was retrieving his uh, toys out of the window of a third-story building. I think for us sometimes, the idea of being in the right place at the right time um, is something that seems out of grasp. And it's either we don't feel like we're in the right place at the right time, um, but more often it's, I think, we wish we were in a different place at the right time. Right, so this summer, y'all are here in the ghost town of College Station. After all of your friends have left and they've gone, maybe they're on vacation, traveling the world. Uh, maybe they're working at a super awesome summer camp, and they just keep 
Instagramming about how awesome their job is and how much they love it, uh, or they're back home with their family and their friends, and they're just hanging out, and you're here in College Station, and you're taking summer classes, or you're taking, uh, or you're working a job, and it just feels like you're not in the right place, especially not at the right time, right? And I think we get this idea often that I just wish I was somewhere else. I, I wish I was in a different place than I am right now. And that's why I'm super excited to walk through the book of Esther and look at the character of Esther this morning, um, because this book, this story has become one of my favorite of the past couple months. Um, as I was telling Marty, I had never read this book until a few months ago, like a terrible Christian I am, not really, but um, man, the story is awesome because it talks about um, being in the right place at the right time. As we look at Esther, it's going to blow your mind. And I think a couple of things that it shows is it shows us that our location is absolutely purposeful, even if you don't think it is. Your location here this summer in College Station is purposeful, and I hope that that's what you get out of this message more than anything, that your location is purposeful, and that if you make your identity in Christ principle above everything else, and you use and you act in your faith, it can be a powerful tool. And that's what I'm hoping to walk through this morning, right? In summary, the the book of Esther is this. It's the story of a young orphan girl uh, in a foreign land through the providence of God saves the Jewish race from genocide. And it's nothing less than that. It sounds like a pretty big statement um, that she saved the Jewish race from genocide, but that's that's what it is, and that's what we're going to see. And the amazing thing is, like I've said, is it's Esther being in the right place, at the right time, even when she really, really, really doesn't think it. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be, uh, we're going to start in Esther chapter 4. We're going to hop around a ton because my hope is to literally tell you the story of Esther this morning. Um, but we're going to start in Esther chapter 4 in verse 14. I'm going to read it and then I'm going to recount the story up until that point. So starting in uh, chapter, verse 14, it says, This is Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, speaking to her. We'll learn about him in a minute. But it says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. And then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. My hope is that in about 20 minutes that those verses are going to get your heart beating and heart racing um, as I put some context behind it because it's an amazing story. Um, So yeah, we're going to kick off beginning of Esther. I'm just going to kind of go through the story. Um, It starts off with this guy. His name is King Assyrius. Okay, and if that name doesn't ring a bell, maybe King Xerxes does. And if Xerxes doesn't ring a bell, maybe the movie 300 rings a bell. If you've ever seen the movie 300, it's about the Spartans um, defending Thermopylae against the Persians. And that Persian king, that's Xerxes. Okay, that's the king that's in Esther, King Assyrius. It's uh, it's just a different translation. Um, But his name is King Assyrius. And the book starts off with King Assyrius holding this military uh, gathering with all of his generals and all of the princes in the land. Uh, and he is planning the invasion of Greece at the beginning of Esther. Okay, really, really cool story. Uh, he has them all over. It's a six-month thing. And at the very end of this, uh, he holds a banquet, a huge party uh, for all these princes and all these guests. And he invites his wife, Queen Vashti, 
to come and perform in front of all of these guys. Um, well, like a really cool lady, she says, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to perform in front of all of your friends. And he turns into this total rage monster and he pretty much disowns her as the queen. And he sends out a decree across the entire land saying, is there ever a woman that does this again? We're not dealing with that, right? And he, he knocks her down. She's no longer queen. And then the story goes on and Queen Assyrius holds a pretty much a beauty pageant to find his next queen. A beauty pageant across the entire Persian kingdom. Who's going to be the next queen? These people are trying out, you know, really uh, an adult version of like tryouts. It's, it's weird. You can read it yourself. I'm not going to go into it. Um, but anyways, this is where we first meet Esther. Okay. Esther and her cousin Mordecai are Jews that are living in Persia during this time. And the reason that's a little bit significant is because most of the Jews are not in the Persian kingdom at this time. What happened was years and years and years before, the Babylonians came in and they conquered Israel and they took a bunch of slaves, uh, Jews as slaves back to the Babylonian kingdom. They were there for 70 years. And then when the Persians took over the Babylonians, uh, the first king let all the Jews go back. And tens and thousands of Jews went back to the Jewish land. But there was a couple who remained in the land at the time. And... Um, Esther and her cousin Mordecai were a group of those remnants of Jews left in the Persian Empire. Kind of like y'all are the remnants left of college students left in College Station, right? So they're in this place where they don't belong. They're in this foreign land, uh, a place that doesn't have the same gods of them, doesn't have the same rules of them, and they're living there. And that's where we meet Esther, okay? Um, We are going to uh, pick up we're actually going to go back to chapter 2, verse 7, and we're going to learn about Esther. Um, Not only is she in a foreign land, but she's a young, beautiful orphan girl. And so um, starting in verse 7, it says he, this is talking about Mordecai, which we'll get to him in a, a second again. It says, and he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the, king's or, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. And the young woman, and the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young woman to the best place in the harem. So what do we see about Esther? Uh, She is in a foreign land. She's in Susa, the citadel of a foreign place. She's a young woman. She's orphaned. Um, She is beautiful. Uh, And this is where we learn the first thing, uh, my first point uh, about Esther. Um, And it's going to develop over the the course of the rest of the morning. But it's that your location is purposeful. Okay? Esther is going to be used, like I said, to save the Jews from genocide. But she is in a foreign land, like I said. She's not where she belongs. And I guarantee you, she doesn't want to be there, right? In the ancient world, being a young woman with no family, that is like, that is like the worst situation you can find yourself in. And more than that, uh, she is now being uh, put on, she's pretty much in these like forced tryouts to be the next queen um, to King Assyrius, who is, you know, this guy that turns into rage monsters often. Like I was saying earlier, I think a lot, uh, this is a lot like us, right? We don't always like our location. 
But I think what Esther teaches is that our location is purposeful. And so moving on in the story, again, this is where we also learn about Mordecai, her cousin. Mordecai is this really cool dude. He's uh, about 15 years older than her, and he's uh, raising her as his own uh, daughter. And Mordecai, he's giving her advice as she's going through these trials about how to conduct herself, about how to act in front of other people. Um, and he's just being, just being a real good, real good dude, right? Um, and we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 16. And we're going to learn about Esther making her way up to where she becomes queen. Really, really cool story. So picking up in verse 16, it says, And when Esther was taken to King Asarius into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the, tenth, which is the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the other virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So Esther makes it. She's queen. She is selected as queen. And this is the very first glimpse of the understanding that her location was purposeful, right? That God is going to use this young Jewish woman uh, to save uh, the people. And during that time, Mordecai is being a good, good father figure. He's kind of just chilling out in the king's courts and he's watching over her, continuing to give her advice. And one day while he's out there, he hears, these, uh, hears some of the eunuchs of Queen Assyrius talking. And they're forming an assassination plot against the king. And Mordecai really has no ties to the Persian kingdom at this point. Um, but as a good citizen, he goes and he tells Esther, he's like, hey, these guys are, these guys are about to assassinate the king. They're going to take him down. And so she goes and tells the king. The king sees more favor in Esther's eyes, puts Mordecai, Mordecai's name in a book, um, you know, just as this is the guy that did it. He doesn't really see any much honor besides that. But the assassination plot is foiled um, and they don't assassinate him. And Esther gets even more and more favor uh, in the eyes of the king during this time. And this is the point in the story where we learn about the big antagonist of the story. It's not the rage monster king of Sirius. It's this guy named Haman. And Haman is the definition of a bad guy. It, there's nothing good about this guy. And the way the story is written, it's supposed to make you hate him. Um, it literally is supposed to make you hate him. And so there's something that I want to do this morning. And it's going to seem a little kiddish, but I promise it's going to be fun. And it involves a little bit of crowd participation. Okay? So I, I hope that you can uh, join in with this. Okay? It'll, it'll be really, really easy. Uh, it'll be a fun Jewish cultural experience. So when this story is normally read, even to this day, um, within the families of Jewish culture, they, uh, they do it during this thing called the Feast of Purim, which is from the book of Esther. Um, but the parents will read the story to their kids, and every time the name of Haman is read in the scriptures, the kids will scream like, boo, and they'll like shake these like rattlers, because he's supposed to be like this, just like the epitome of like this bad guy, okay? Um, it's part of like the engagement. So what I want to do is every time that I read the name Haman in the scriptures, I want y'all to give a horse laugh, okay? Just a, and only when I read it in the scripture, because otherwise we're going to be hissing all the morning because Haman's name is going to come up a lot. Um, but yeah, so we meet, we meet the, the real bad guy in this story, right? His name's Haman. So I'm going to pick up in chapter three, the beginning of chapter three. Um, anytime you hear the name Haman, you can go ahead and give it his. And if everybody does it loud the first time, I think we'll be okay and you won't feel awkward afterwards. So, so chapter, or verse one of chapter three, it says, after these things, King Assyrius promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadath, to advance him and set him on the throne above all the other officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. 
For the king had, this is awesome. For the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were with the king at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when he spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told him that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as, they, so as he had made known to him who were the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Assyrius. Awesome, guys. That was a good job. So what's happening here? Uh, the king promotes this guy named Haman. You don't have this again. Uh, Haman to his right-hand man. And Haman's going around the kingdom, and he's making all these people pay homage to the king uh, in order, you know, it's a, it's a pretty typical thing to make people obey the king, make sure everyone is um, listening. And when he gets to Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't bow down, and he doesn't pay homage to the king. And it just ticks Haman off. I mean, he turns into even more of a rage monster than King Assyrius. Uh, and he, he literally snaps and he doesn't focus on anything else except for taking down Mordecai, but much more than that, taking down the Jews in, in general. And so what happens in the story is he goes before the king and he says, hey, king, um, there's this group of people that are that have different laws, that have different um, values. They're, they're kind of a cancer in your kingdom. Uh, I'll take care of them. Let me take care of these people. I'll even pay you money. I'll put money into your bank account or your king account um, if I can go and I can get rid of these people. And he's talking about the Jews, even though he never tells the king that. The king doesn't really care. He says, fine, signs, signs this decree with a signet ring, sends it out across the entire uh, kingdom for the killing and the murder of every single Jew, man, woman, and child. And it's this terrible, terrible event. And what happens is Mordecai hears about it. Uh, He does your typical Old Testament, you know, lamentation where he puts on sackcloth, he goes, he lays in the dirt, and he's just utterly upset. He's just broken for his people because he knows that his people are about to just be wiped out. And honestly, a lot of it comes back to the fact that he just didn't, bow down and pay homage, right? Well, from this point, Esther hears about him, um, and uh, Esther hears about him out in the courtyard. She doesn't really know what's going on, um, and so, uh, yeah, just making sure I'm in the right spot. Um, She hears about it. She doesn't know what's going on, so she sends some of her people to go talk to him, and we're going to pick up in chapter 4, verse 4, and we're going to read through. We're getting close to those passages that I read at the beginning. Um, so verse four, it says, and when Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hakath, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. And Agath went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him in the exact sum of money that Haman, had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king and to beg for his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people. And Esther went and told, uh, and Hacketh went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. And then Esther spoke to Hakkai and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, 
All the king's servants and the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except for the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that they may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for these 30 days. So what happens, Esther hears about what's going on and Mordecai is begging and pleading with her for her to go into the king. You are our hope. Go into him. Tell him, don't kill our people. You can't do this. And what is Esther's first response? Her response is, everybody knows that if you go into the king's courts without being invited, there's one law. Pretty much be put to death on the spot unless the king just happens to show you favor that day. And she takes her identity as queen and puts it above everything else. I'm in this position where I can't lose this title, right? I can't lose the position that I'm in. It's more important than everything else. But this is, this is where this part of the story where, you know, your heart starts beating because we get to the passage that I read um, at the beginning. Picking up back in verse 12, it says, And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do you think to yourself that if the king, uh, sorry, do you think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than the other Jews? For if you keep silent at a time, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This is where we see our second principle, I think, with Esther. And it's that our identity is principle. Esther's first thought is that I'm queen. I, I, can't, I can't do this. It's more important than anything else. But then she quickly realizes that her identity as a Jew, as a child of God, as part of the family of God, is far more principle than the other things that she feels are valuable in her life, right? And she has that amazing quote she says, um, Uh, in verse 16, she says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish, right? She holds her identity as a Jew above everything else. And she understands there is a, there is a very, very good chance that I'm going to die here. But she puts her identity as a Jew above the other things and her identity, her identity makes her act, right? Her identity as a Jew forms her actions. I think for us, sometimes this is an area where we quickly, quickly push it off to the side. I know for me, when I go home sometimes, I'm, the, I'm really the only Christian that's in my family, or at least in my immediate family. So when I go home for family reunions or for holidays or something like that, um, and we get to dinner, and for some reason, my family who's not religious thinks we need to pray, uh, and then they all turn to me, and they're like, oh, Taylor, do you want to pray? Uh, how's your job going? How's church going? And you know, they start asking all these questions that to me feel kind of belittling, and instead of embracing that opportunity for me to hold my identity as a Christian above everything else, I, I kind of want to, you know, turn my back and, you know, because I want my identity as the cool guy in the family or as, uh, you know, the, the, the kid that they've known growing up. I want that to be primary in their mind, not this, this weird Christian. I think a lot of times for us, it's so much easier for us to deflect uh, our identity as Christians and not make it principal over anything else. That's not what Esther does. Is she goes in and she's, she's bold and she puts her identity above everything else. For us in here, I, th- I think we, we have to do this, especially this summer. This, this campus kind of rids itself uh, of a lot of the um, Christian people that are here. If you're here during the school year, uh, it's one of the most happening Christian places on the planet, I'm pretty sure. During the summer, though, people are off on mission trips, working at uh, summer camps, and this place doesn't, doesn't have as much of the Christian bubble, right? 
But I think for us, we get to put that identity and make it principal in our classes and in our jobs, uh, right? The identity that we are saved through the blood of Christ, that we are sinful, but yet he came into this world and died and rose again and defeated death, and that that is our identity, and that is the message that we share first and foremost over anything. Unfortunately, I don't have enough time to go through the rest of the story, even though I Totally would. I wish I could just do like a sermon series on Esther because it's an amazing book. But essentially what happens is Esther goes into the king's palace and he shows favor on her, right? Divine providence there. She walks in, the king shows favor on her and listens to her and he says, I'll give you anything up to half this kingdom. What do you want? And instead of immediately saying, I want Haman to die or something like that, she, she says, I want to hold a banquet with you and Haman, Okay? And it's this crazy story where she has this plan coming up, and we'll get to it in a second. And at the same time, Haman's over there, and um, he builds these gallows that he's going to kill Mordecai on in the middle of the town square. He's going across the kingdom, and he's making sure that the Jews are being put to death. And then um, one of those nights before the banquet, the king can't sleep, it, the text says. And so he has his, he has his uh, eunuchs start to read in the stories of the chronicles of his kingdom, and uh, they get to the story of Mordecai, about this guy who told him about the assassination plot, saved his life. The king says, what's ever been done for this guy? And they said, nothing. And so he says, okay, let's crown Mordecai. Let's parade him around the city. Let's give him a bunch of honor. And it's an amazing story. Can't really go into it, but the king has favor on Mordecai, right? The king has favor on Esther. And so in one of these evenings when they go to the banquet, Esther's sitting there with the king. She's sitting there with Haman. It's just the three of them. And she says, hey, king, Haman wants to kill me. Haman wants to kill Mordecai. And Haman wants to kill all of my people. And it's just this crazy story where she turns it around on Haman. King Assyrius, typical rage monster. He gets upset at Haman. And story goes, he has Haman killed. Uh, He sends out a decree across the entire nation. The Jews are saved right? The king of Sirius honors Mordecai, honors Esther, and the Jews in the, in the Persian empire are once again safe. And that's where we get kind of to our last point is that our faith is powerful. Our faith is so, so powerful. Um, you think of what she says, Esther, the story is so unique because Esther never has a big sign, a big wonder. She doesn't have some kind of big special revelation. She doesn't have some prophet saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. You see all the other times in the, in the Bible where there's a story of divine providence, there always seems to be some kind of sign or wonder that are pushing people in the right direction, right? Nowhere in this text does it say that Esther has any idea what's going to happen when she enters the king's the king's inner courts. Actually, she says, if I perish, I perish. She's convinced she's going to die, Right? This is one of the only stories where um, we see somebody acting 100% on faith. And I think it's very, very, very much like our story a lot of the time, right? Where we don't see these big signs. We don't see these big wonders or special revelations or prophets saying, hey, go do this. You know, we're just walking out on faith. Um, and that faith is powerful. Like I said, she saves the Jewish race from genocide. This little young orphan girl in a foreign land, saves the Jewish race from genocide. And I think about, like, what, what does that kind of faith look like? Uh, and I think it's kind of like this. I think it's kind of like if you were an Aggie this spring, and you were down by 12 points with 44 seconds left to go at the end of uh, the basketball game, right? And you're this guy with the ball. You're, you're this team, uh, and 
I know I was watching this game, uh, and I was like, it's over. I almost, we almost turned it off at one point because uh, we thought it was going to be over. Uh, but this team, the Aggies, they, they had faith, right? I didn't have faith. I'm guaranteed most of y'all didn't have faith in this moment. But they had faith. They had faith that the practice that they had put in, the hard work that they had put in, the team that they had gone through this whole season with, they had faith in that moment. And so when they got 44 seconds left and they're down by 12 points, they didn't give up. They continued to play basketball just as hard as they did earlier in the game, right? They exercised that moment of faith, and it was powerful, right? We won the game, and it's the biggest comeback in NCAA history ever. Um, yeah, it's just crazy. I, I still remember that game. But um, anyways, the story of Esther is showing this girl, and, and it teaches us that our location is purposeful, Right? Y'all's location here, you being in College Station this summer, is purposeful. It's not just a time to go binge on Netflix, go to school for three hours, and then lay out by the pool the rest of the day, right? (laughs) You can do that if you want, but that's not what it's for. God has you here for a reason, and even if you don't understand that, or you don't believe that, or you don't think that, it's true. God's providence is working behind what you're doing, so don't waste this summer. Your identity is principle. Let that be known to the people around you, that you are a Christian, that you love God, and that you want those people to know about it, that you have been redeemed by Christ in his blood. Let that be the first thing, and then understand uh, that, man, if you, if you exercise that faith, like these guys, <laughs> it, it's powerful. It can do a lot. This summer is not a waste. What's interesting about the book of Esther is that in the 10 chapters of it, it doesn't mention the word God once. Nowhere in it does it say God said this or anything like that. It's one of the only, the only books in the Bible that does that. One of two books in the Bible that doesn't mention God anywhere in it. But what's amazing about this story, I think, is that uh, the story makes it clear that even when God is most hidden, that he's still present and working to protect and deliver his people. Um, and man, that's, a, that's, that's powerful. And so what I, what I would love to ask y'all to do um, to kind of wrap things up here is don't waste this summer. Understand that you being here is purposeful. It's not, it's not just a lame summer of you taking classes and not being where you truly want to be, okay? Read the book of Esther. This thing literally reads like a novel. That's why I used 90% of my talk this morning just reading this instead of, you know, coming up with a bunch of crazy examples because this thing reads like a novel it's so interesting it's an amazing story read it you can read the whole thing in one sitting in about 30 40 minutes you'll love it and when you do it i want you to think about man how is esther's actions relate to me this summer okay and then sign up for one of our bible studies and i'm not just trying to sell our bible studies but like marty said uh our bible studies are an awesome time for us as a as a smaller community um of grace and when it when we hit the fall there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of people but this summer sign up for a bible study and grow let this be a time where you can grow and not only sign up yourself but invite somebody if everybody in this room went to our college bible studies and invited one person we would have more people in our summer college Bible studies than we do in our, our fall or spring <laughs> college Bible studies. And it would be amazing. And it would be an awesome time where you get to grow in the word. And then maybe you also get to invite somebody into that moment that isn't here this morning. That doesn't just normally walk into a Sunday morning. And then lastly, 
And this is, be an Esther this, this summer. Be somebody who literally lays it out on the table and does something big. Esther literally laid her life down on the line. She walked into the king's court with an understanding that she was about to die. Uh, and then she ended up saving the people. For you this summer, find a moment where you can literally lay everything out on the line uh, to try to bring the gospel to somebody, to, to, to save somebody's soul, right? That's an amazing, amazing opportunity. And so uh, if I were you, I, I would write it down uh, on a sheet of paper, maybe stick it in your Bible. And every time you open your Bible this summer, that you see maybe be an Esther this summer and look for those opportunities where you can literally just lay it out on the line. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the book of Esther. Uh, I thank you for the story of Esther's life. Lord, how you teach us where we are in life, whether it's where we want to be or not. Uh, God, that it is purposeful that you have put us in these moments and these places for a reason. God, help us to see in this room uh, that being in College Station in the summer, taking summer classes and working, is not just a waste of a fun summer, but Lord, that it is an opportunity. Father, help us to see um, that our identity should be principle above everything else, that we should be willing to lay it on the line like Hester did. And Lord, help us to see those moments where our faith can be powerful, where we can bring people into your fold, Lord, that we can tell people the gospel, that we can save people, that we can help people to understand the fullness of life um, that is in you. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. I pray um, for, these, uh, for these students in their summer ahead that they wouldn't waste it, Lord. We pray all this in your son Christ's name. Amen.